Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Okay? All right, there we go. Good, good. All right, good morning. It's good to be here. Good to be back from my vacation. Well, I wouldn't say good, but it's, it's right that I'm back. A month is long enough, but uh, we're glad to be home, and I'm even more glad to be up here uh, bringing the word to you today. What we're going to be doing for the next I mean, four weeks, Justin is on a sabbatical, so uh, when the preaching duties were, were uh, presented, I, I volunteered to do the four weeks while he's gone. And uh, as far as a topic goes, there's always, whenever you get four weeks, you like to pick a good topic, a good solid topic you can dig into and, and preach on. And uh, when I was sort of forming my view of the ministry and my um, understanding of preaching, one of the men who had a big influence on me was Augustine. I'd read a lot of of St. Augustine. And uh, one thing I loved about his ministry was that it was, a lot of it was based on the Psalms. He loved the Psalms. Uh, He he sang the Psalms. He recited the Psalms. He could stand up at any moment and give a little homily, probably on on any Psalm in the Bible. So he was a man who deeply uh, drank from the theology and the teaching of the Psalms. And his congregation did the same thing. That they loved the psalm so much so that often Augustine would get up and he would quote a psalm, just meaning to quote a, a, a verse or two, and the people would chime in and finish quoting the psalm for him. And he'd stop and say, okay, I didn't mean to quote the whole thing, but since you've started, let's finish. And they would actually finish quoting that psalm for him. That's how much he loved the psalms and how much knowledge his congregation had of the psalms. The fact that he taught them constantly and that they sang them constantly, they were people people that were filled with the theology and the teaching of the Psalms. And, and in picking that topic, I didn't want to just do uh, four Psalms. I want to try to do a, a cluster of Psalms or a group of Psalms that were somehow related. And what I came up with, and I was agreed with this, was to preach on a, what are called the Messianic Psalms or the Royal Psalms. I think a better term for these are the Royal Psalms. And there's two conditions uh, to, to whether it classifies as one of these Psalms. First, is it used in the Old Testament or New Testament? Is this Psalm quoted in the New Testament? extensively or not. And secondly, does it deal something with the the royalty or the kingship of Christ? And the four we're going to do, we're going to start today with Psalm 2. Uh, Next week, we're going to do Psalm 8. Now, Psalm 8 is not so much a a, a psalm of kingship, but it is a psalm that's used extensively to refer to Christ in the New Testament. And we're going to look at Psalm 110, which is definitely a a kingship or royal psalm that's used in the Old New Testament. And we're going to look at Psalm 72. And 72 is a little bit odd because it deals with uh, the kingship of of God, but it's not quoted in the New Testament. So it's going to be kind of a challenge. Uh, And it's a rather long psalm, too. So... um, um, that's what we're going to be looking for in the next four weeks. Today, Psalm 2, next week, Psalm 8, Psalm 110, and Psalm 72. And I admit that these are not, difficult, not easy psalms to, to study and to preach through. In fact, I, I got kind of halfway into Psalm 2 and thought, well, uh, I really wish I could change the topic to something a little bit easier, like you know, Christian marriage or something like that, or raising children. But I, I, I purchased so many books to update my commentaries in the psalms that I think Scott would... Uh, Look probably pretty badly if I simply didn't use those books for this study. So I, I stuck it out, and, and we'll see how the Lord blesses it. But again, Psalm 2. I'll go ahead and read the psalm very quickly. We'll start with a word, word of prayer. Then we'll read it and dig in. So let's have a word of prayer. 
Our Father, we thank you for the day of giving us. Thank you for the preaching and teaching of the word. Thank you for the uh, communion that we uh, participated in, the sharing in the body and blood of Christ in remembrance of his work. Thank you for the songs, for the prayers. And we thank you for this time of preaching, Father, where we open up your word uh, and attempt to explain it, to teach it, to preach it to your brethren so that we can uh, come to a greater understanding of what you say to us, what our obligations are to you, and what you have spoken to your people, Father, with the idea of us obeying that word, of being transformed uh, by the work of your spirit into the image of our blessed Savior. So give us wisdom, give us understanding, let your spirit work in us in a way that we come away uh, a different people, Father, understanding a new aspect or perhaps a, a, a better aspect or understanding of Christ, particularly relating to his, his kingship and, and his authority over us and over the world. We thank you for these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Psalm 2. Uh, the title here is Reign of the Lord's Anointed. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision, or he scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king upon Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As for me... Ask of me, and I will make you make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For, the wrath, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, the sort of the outline we're going to be following in these psalms is first we're going to do a sort of an exegesis, just to basically explain what the psalm is saying here, what's being spoken of here. And what I want to try to do is to, uh, when we talk about the, the study of the Bible, there's the idea called uh, the history of redemption. What that means is that when things are, are first revealed in the early parts of the Bible, uh, there's often not much spoken of about them. We get a little tiny piece of information, but as history progresses, as God speaks more to his people throughout the ages, we learn more and more about that topic. It, the way I illustrated, it's like a little bud uh, that grows on, on a vine or one of your flowers. Okay, in, in May, that may just be a, a tight little group of leaves. They really can't see much. But as the, the spring and summer progress, that flower opens and reveals more of its beauty and its glory. Well, redemption is like that. And we take the, the idea of the Messiah. How is it revealed in Genesis chapter 3? Just seed of a woman. That's all we know. Seed of a woman. Satan will crush, will crush his head on, heel on your head, and you will crush his head. That's pretty much all we know. But as Scripture progresses, we learn more and more about who this seed is un until the fullness of the New Testament where he's completely revealed to us. And what I want to do in, in studying these psalms is only stay in that progress of redemption where this psalm was written. How did the people who read this who had no idea what Matthew said, no idea what Paul said about the Messiah, no idea what happens in Revelation, how did they understand this psalm? 
without looking forward. Just said, what, where, where that bud at that point in time, that little opening that they could look down and see something of its beauty, what was that? So we're not going to be jumping ahead into the New Testament or even further along in the Old Testament to learn what this means, but stick straight to what they would have understood at that time. And then we're going to have a second section called Reflections where we will take that, those ideas and bring them through time and through redemptive history to show how they reveal themselves in the New Testament. That'll be a sort of a, a theology slash application of, of the passage. So, again, just sticking to what the original reader would have understood about this psalm. Now, what was that? Well, the psalm is a, a coronation psalm, what we understand it to be. This was a royal psalm that was used to, uh, at the coronation of an Israelite king, sort of the ceremony when a king is sworn in. Most scholars believe that this was a psalm that was read at that time, or it was quoted. Maybe there was a, a one person quoted one part. We're going to see there's different speakers here in this psalm that help us understand what it's saying here. So it was used during this coronation ceremony when a new king was in installed in Israel. Now, it's divided into four different sections. Uh, we'll see what those sections are. The first one, it starts out with the word why. Why are the nations in an uproar and the people devising a vain thing? And this is, seems to be the reader speaking or maybe the speaking for the Lord. But the question why here, the, the word why here, it's not asking for information. He's not saying, scratch his head, saying, I wonder why these nations are rebelling like this. It's not an interrogative. Uh, it's more of a, an expression of astonishment or surprise. Why is this happening? Um, uh, an illustration, we all watch Funny Home videos here probably, right? I always see the kids nod when I mention Funny Home videos. You ever see the, those ones where the, uh, the little toddler uh, gets in his mother's makeup, and he's a little diaper baby with a big belly, and he takes the uh, lipstick and rubs it all over over the wall, his face, his stomach is just covered with lipstick. And he's just sitting there in his hand, just smiling as his mother walks in. And, you know, you kind of expect that from a toddler. But what if it was a teenager that did that? You know, the mother would probably put her hands in her head and say, why? Why did you do, why are you so, I'm so stupid, so senseless, so ignorant? Why would you have done something like this? That's sort of what the writer is saying here. Why? This is something that is astonishingly ignorant, that is stupid, that is completely meaningless and senseless. Why would you do something like this? Now, the question is, what is taking place that would cause him to ask why? We see that in the next verse. It says, the nations are in an uproar. Uh, they are devising a vain thing. They set themselves against the king and his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So these nations are looking out, and they're seeing something taking place. They're seeing themselves under some type of bondage, and they're trying to break that bondage, trying to uh, destroy it, remove it from them, and they're raging, it says, against the Lord and his anointed. They have these bonds upon them. They don't want them to be on. They're trying to get them off. They're, in a sense, in rebellion against this Lord and his anointed. And the fact that they are in rebellion against him is what just astonishes the writer of this psalm. He can't believe that they would do something so ridiculous, so stupid as rebel against the Lord. Uh, you can almost imagine a... Um, Again, this is going on during the coronation of the king. And again, during the 
time of a coronation, uh, the king was at his most vulnerable. When the king was transitioning uh, from a father to a son, uh, there was often a, a vulnerability in that king. He was new, he was green, he was inexperienced. Uh, there may be plots against him from within his kingdom or without. So if a nation was going to pressure a, a kingdom or, a ki or to take over a king, it would be done during the transition when his power was at its weakest. And, and that is sort of what's happening here. There's this coronation going on, and while it's going on, these nations are plotting and raging against this king. You can imagine almost a, a, a split screen where you have the coronation service, and all of it, it's glory, it's regality, uh, the sublimity of installing a new king, of uh, the beautiful music, the robes, and everything. And the other screen, you have the, uh, the nations raging in, in their dark dens, in their banquet halls raging against this king, trying to find ways to overthrow him and destroy him. That's the picture going on here. One is the raging, a rebelling of the nation surrounding Israel, and another one is the coronation, uh, the appointment of this glorious king in, on the throne of Israel. Again, it would be a great time of fear and dread, uh, except for the fact they are rebelling and plotting against, it is the Lord and his anointed. This is not some earthly king that they are raging against, not some earthly man that they are fighting against. It is the Lord of heaven. That's the idea of heaven here is the idea of he is above those who are raging upon the earth. The nations are on the earth. Uh, they are over small regional areas where this Lord is over the earth. He is the Lord of the heavens. He is in the heavens and his authority is given to those kings, and they rule under his authority and under his auspices. Now, notice here when it talks about the cords being broken. Uh, it's not the Lord's cords or his bonds. It's their cords. It's the Lord's cords and his anointed. So they're rebelling not just against the Lord of heaven, uh, the Lord God himself, they are raging against his anointed as well, the one who he has chosen, who he has now put upon this throne. And that is what astonishes him. Why would they do such a vain thing? Why would they go against the Lord of heaven, these little small puny regional monarchs, uh, these small little rulers who control a, a very small area of the world when comparison not only to the whole world, but to the whole universe and to the heavens, why would they rage against the God of heaven and his anointed? That's the question that's being asked here. That's what astonishes the writer of the psalm. What would make them, what would possess them to rage against the Lord of heaven and his anointed? <clears throat> and again, this is to encourage the people as well uh, that during this time of weakness that the Lord of heaven, the Lord of earth is putting his king there and that king will stand. We went to uh, Maine recently, uh, Geneva and I on our vacation and uh, there's these places on the coast of Maine, it's just amazing, there's these big uh, rocks, these big ribbons of granite like 25 feet thick that just shoot right out of the ground at like 45 degree angles. It's just incredible and they come right out of the ocean and maybe half of them's in the water and half of them's out but you stand there and, and you watch these waves smash against this rock. And it's amazing how, how it's been a while since I've been to the ocean, how powerful and active the ocean is, even on a calm day. We're sitting there watching this, and, and these waves are coming up four or five feet and hitting this rock and just drifting back out. And 
you stand there and you see the power of those waves and how strong they are and how persistent and consistent they are, knowing that they've been doing that for tens of thousands of years, if you're not a young earth creationist. But they've been doing it for a while, basically. Let's put it that way. And you think that the power and the strength of that granite, and you stand there watching it, and there's not an ounce of fear that, oh, okay, this w- the next wave is going to just wash it away and we're going to be done. No, you're standing on something solid that's been there for, for thousands of years. And this idea of the Lord putting his anointed on the throne, of his anointed being there, gives this idea of stability in a time of great distress when a king is at his weakest. To the Israelites, this would have been a time of confidence. No, it is the Lord's anointed. God is installing our king. And no matter how much the nations rage, no matter how powerful they are around us, no matter how many their number are, we will stand firm, and God will not be moved. So that's sort of what's going in this first section here. Uh, It would have been laughable to assume that the nations would have power to remove this king, just as it would have been laughable to think that the next wave is going to wash that massive piece of granite and us standing on it into the ocean. Now, what is the Lord's response here? The Lord's response to this rebellion is he basically laughs at it. Verse 4, he who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds, holds them in derision or scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king upon my holy hill. So this would be the, the sort of second scene in this uh, psalm here. We go from the nations rebelling, now we go to the Lord looking down upon and responding to this rebellion. And again, he basically laughs. He scoffs at them. It's such a stupid idea as thinking that you, you puny nations, you puny kings, can overthrow me and overthrow my anointed. The proper response is just to laugh at it. And that's exactly what the Lord does here. Uh, Again, the idea of sitting in the heavens is more of just denoting God's presence. The idea of sitting in heavens denotes enthronement, uh, reigning, ruling over all that is on the earth. The the, uh, Old Testament people were very spatial. Uh, If you were low, you were low. If you were high, you were above and had authority over that which you were above. And that's the idea here. God, his rule is is compared to a limited, earthly, even regional reign of the rebelling kings. All that is under the heavens come under God's authority and under his dominion. Now, verse 5 moves from the present into the future. He's scoffing at them now. He's mocking them, laughing them, showing derision for them now. But there's going to be a time where God acts. And what he's going to do, it says, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, so there's going to be a time where God acts in the future. He's going to say something, which implies he's going to do something to them. God doesn't speak without ultimately acting and doing what he says. And what he's going to do is going to terrify them. So these powerful, boastful nations running around bragging about how they're going to break off the cords of the Lord, how they're going to take his anointed and and remove his fetters from them. They're going to go in and conquer and rule over him are going to be brought to utter fear and become terrified at something that the Lord is going to do. And terrify them in his fury. And and what is going to terrify them? 
Verse 6, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. There's something about what God is going to do in installing this king upon his holy hill that's going to bring terror and fear to these nations. And this will be an act of God's judgment. He will terrify them in his fury. He will speak to them in his wrath. So what is God going to do? What is it about this king that God is going to install or is installing on his throne that's going to bring about this fear, this terrifying of the nations. Well, the second section, the third section, verse 7 through 5, deals with this. What is God going to do? And it's kind of, it's kind of a difficult section here. It's always confused me when I first started reading this years ago. I remember the first time I read it as a new Christian, I was sort of puzzled by it. But um, this fear here... Uh, is going to be invoked by what happens in verses 7 through 10. And the best way to understand is what's confusing about it are the quotes, the way the quotes are going. Uh, It says this, I will tell of the decree of the Lord. So somebody here is going to tell a decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So somebody is quoting while they're quoting the Lord. They're saying something that the Lord is saying, but what they're saying is what somebody said to the Lord himself. So it's very confusing as to who is speaking here and what are they speaking about. And the best way to understand it is to look down. There's three scenes here so far. We have the scene looking down upon the earth and seeing the rebellion rebellion of the nations. Uh, Then we look to heaven where we see God responding to that rebellion. And now in the third section, we're going down into the earth again, but not to the nations. We're going down into this coronation ceremony where this installation of the anointed is taking place. And we're seeing what's happening there. Remember the last verse of the last section, verse 6 says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So the idea here is let's go see what is being said at this anointing at this coronation. And he says, I will tell of the decree of the Lord. So now the psalmist is going to tell what the decree was that the Lord made with this king when he installed him on his throne. Again, this is the Davidic king uh, reciting the decree that the Lord made with him. It is the promises the Lord made with his father David. We know uh, by the similarity of this bears to the covenant God made with David in 2 Samuel 7 that this is a Davidic king. Remember when God made his promises to David in 2 Samuel, I believe it was 7, there are two parts to that promise. Where the first one was that you will have an eternal throne. Your throne will live forever. It will never end. I will establish it. Then there's a second sort of odd promise there made, and that is that the son that I put on your throne will bear a special relationship to me. And that is he will be my son. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. So he's saying, not only am I going to give you an eternal throne, David, but there will be a special relationship between that man and me where I will call him my son in a unique way, and he will call me father in a special way. And that seems to be what's brought out here in verse 7. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So he's expressing here this idea of sonship, this phileo relationship he has with this king. And we're not going to get into all the debating about what it means, what 
In what way was he his son? Was it a natural son? Was it uh, ontological where he's referring to the second member of the Trinity? That's really irrelevant. What we want to do is focus on one element of sonship that would have been clearly understood in the Old Testament. And as when you had a son, what was that son given the right to upon the father's death? An inheritance. So when you said someone's my son, you were specifying that that son, however that relationship may be, whatever its nature may be, that son is going to have an inheritance that I will give him. And that's what's being brought out here in these verses here. At this coronation ceremony, not only is he declaring him to be the son, but he's telling him what his inheritance will be and all of that, but what his responsibility will be in receiving that inheritance. And if you've read ahead, what is the inheritance that God gives this son? The ends of the earth. It's all yours. I've installed you as king. I've I've called you my son. And now as a result of that relationship, you will possess the ends of the earth. He says in verse 6, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage or your inheritance. And the ends of the earth shall be your possessions. So when God installs this king, He calls him son, and he says, all of it is yours. Those nations that are raging against you, that are fighting against you, that are rebelling against you, those are yours. You are not only king over this small little nation of Israel. You are also going to be king over them as well. So he's taking these raging, these rebelling nations and and giving them over to the son and saying, they're all yours. Based on the relationship that you bear with me as father and son, they are yours yours. And now there's a responsibility that comes with that. It's not just given as a a nice little thing to put up on a wall and say, oh yeah, all the nations are mine. There's a responsibility that comes with that. And that responsibility is that he's going to rule and he's going to judge these nations. He says, and you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces as a potter's vessel. This is what causes the nations to fear knowing that the father has given this son, this king he's installed, the nations, and God will judge the nations. Now, they don't understand this yet, but when it comes to be realized, they will be terrified. And again, the words here for for terrify and fury are are, are very strong words in Hebrew. The idea of uh, terrify... Uh, when, remember when Joseph uh, met, his, met his brothers and it was revealed uh, who Joseph actually was. That word terrify there is used to express the emotions that Joseph's brothers felt when they realized that the one that they had mistreated so badly that they had sold into slavery now had the power over them uh, of life and death. It says that they were terrified. That's the same sense that the nations have here when they realize that this son that they are rebelling against Uh, now is going to be their ruler and their judge. It terrifies them. Uh, Again, terrifies them in their God's fury. This is God's wrath being displayed upon the nations. So again, God is going to simply give them these nations and he's going to judge. Uh, The imagery here is very powerful uh, and very violent as well. It's the idea of of a rod, taking a large iron rod and, and just shattering a piece of pottery with that rod. There'll be no resistance whatsoever. And it'll be devastating. Nobody's going to come and try to put this piece of pottery back together. It's a complete, utter judgment and destruction for their rebellion. So let's do a quick summary of where we've been so far before we move on to the last section. 
First of all, uh, we've taken sort of a trip. We, we first, we went to the nations, uh, and we heard their vain boasting, their bragging. Uh, they expressed their utter contempt for the Lord uh, and his anointed by plotting and scheming to throw, uh, to overthrow him and his anointed, to, to tear their cords apart and, and throw their bonds away. Uh, secondly, we have gone to heaven where the Lord sits and reigns over the nations. And from there, uh, he laughs at these nations. He mocks them. He scorns them for their stupidity. And then he expresses the the fury, the anger that will terrify them when he installs his king upon Mount Zion. Now we go to the coronation, where this is explained, expanded further. And he explains to them that he is giving these nations over to his king, to his son as an inheritance, and that son will then judge them and destroy those nations. Now the final scene. This is a scene where now God is going to explain what the nation should do, what their obligation is based on this knowledge. God doesn't want to just judge the nations. He doesn't want to destroy the nations. So he gives them an out. He's going to explain, based on these realities, based on these truths, what should you do? What is your obligation to these rebellious nations? What can you now do based on this information, based on this knowledge? Again, it shows that the Lord is not some sadistic, brutal tyrant. Rather, he graciously explains what their fate is, and that it's not sealed, that there is an escape. In the midst of their rebellion, a conniving and devious treachery, he graciously explains to them what their response should be. He begins with the words, now therefore. Now, because this son has been given the nations as his inheritance. And this son will judge you and terrify you and smash you. Uh, Because of that, this is what you should do. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. The Lord is telling the nations to consider what has been said and be reasonable, to do what is rational, what is right in light of what you have heard. The idea of take warning, the idea of chastening, disciplining, or instruction is the idea of of disciplining a child. And it's kind of ironic here that here are these great mighty kings who should be displaying great wisdom in ruling their people and leading their people are told to be wise. They're told to receive this instruction pretty much like a child would receive instruction and act upon it in that way. So a little bit of irony here in these ideas, take warning, uh, the idea of chastising or discipline or instructing a child or an undisciplined result. In other words, the Lord is saying to these kings, you have been rebuked in your rebellion, now act upon what has been said as a child would act to his father's discipline or react to his father's discipline. Now, what are they to do? Okay, be reasonable, be rational. But now God is going to spell out even further, here are the steps that you take to be reasonable. Again, God is being incredibly gracious here. He's leaving no stone unturned. Here is the path that you must go to if you're going to be under my graces and under the graces of my son. First of all, be reasonable in light of what has been said. Secondly, secondly, he tells them that, one second here, 
Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his, his wrath may soon be kindled. So there, there's two steps here to the restoration. First, is it there to serve the Lord with trembling? The idea of serving here, worship here, is the idea of serving. When you serve, the idea of service means to, uh, to work, to labor, uh, to, to do something for, and many of the translations, it's, tra- it's translated to worship. So worship me, serve me. Uh, do what pleases me and do it with fear. Uh, there should be a the idea of reverence is here. It implies that the worshiper has an, a numinous sense of God's power and glory that draws him to the Lord in love and adoration and amazement, while at the same time, it, it tempts him to shrink back in fear that I'm approaching one that is so great and that is so majestic that he examines himself to make sure that he's approaching him with the right frame of mind and the right attitude. People that just go up to God as if he's a buddy or a friend or a slap him on the back, tell a silly joke, that's not the kind of God we worship, and reverence takes that into account. We realize the power that who we are approaching. Uh, you children, you have your, I was a kid once, I remember the, you know, the silly little jokes we used to tell and giggle. Sometimes they weren't the, the nicest jokes, but they, we had these jokes, and you know, you think about, you tell your friends, and they kind of giggle and laugh, but would you ever go tell an elder one of those jokes, or a deacon? No, you probably wouldn't. Why? Because of the respect and the authority that they have. They're not to be trifled with in that way. Well, fearing God just simply means God is not to be trifled with. I'm approaching the king of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth, and I need to fear carefully, tread carefully as I approach him. That's the idea of of fear here, of reverence. And they are to rejoice with trembling, not just serve him uh, with fear, but rejoice with trembling. And and the idea of rejoicing here, it it intensifies their service. When we serve somebody simply based on will, uh, we're doing it out of duty. And the only Part of our character that's engaged is our will. Uh, when you, you know, we all know we have times where we want to study the word, but we have no desire to do so. We just get up out of sheer will to get up and read the word or get up and pray. And you know what it's like when there's a joy to that as well, how much better, how much more beneficial your studies, your prayers are when there's a joy with it, when there's a joy, all of, all of our facilities are involved, our emotions, our mind, our heart, our will, all of it's there. And that's the kind of service God wants here. A one that causes you to rejoice, uh, to be happy, to be glad to serve him. All the faculties of the will are involved. And again, that is to be done with trembling as well. The same sort of fear is to be there. Again, a fear, it's a fear that makes us cautious, discerning, discerning and thoughtful as we approach God. Again, trembling emphasis, it ensures that the rejoicing is done in a way that is consistent with who God is. So to summarize, the proper response that the pagans' nation should have in light of what has been said is to essentially turn from their idols and serve the living God. They're to cast away their idols that they now serve and turn and serve the living God. That is what God requires. Now, what do we call this in the scripture? There's a, a theological and biblical term that we use for this. What do we call that? Starts with an R. Ten word, ten letters. Yeah, repentance, exactly. He wants them to repent. To turn from their idols to the living and true God. But that is not enough. There's one more thing God requires, and that is what is their attitude to be towards this son, towards this anointed? 
It's a very interesting word here. Uh, the word is to honor or to do homage to. And the literal word here is the word for kiss. So he wants them to kiss the son. So it's not just me that you're to change your attitude towards, but you're to respond in a unique way to my son, the one whom I have installed on the throne. And he describes that as doing homage or kissing the son. Again, at Hebrew, it's used figuratively to denote a complete adoration and servitude towards somebody. Uh, in 1 Kings 19.14, when Elijah is having his complaint about none following the Lord, that everybody's turned away except for me, uh, when the Lord responds to them, he says this, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So the word kissed here is the same word that the psalmist is using in Psalm 2, to kiss the son, to give him homage and respect. It's not only a sign of reverence, but intimacy and deep respect for someone as well. And when it re was revealed to Joseph's brothers, uh, who Joseph actually was, remember what they did? It says they kissed him, again, showing their reverence, their submission, their adoration, their gratefulness towards their brother for not killing him for what they did. And it also shows that they acknowledge, they recognize what the dreams were about. Remember, Joseph was sold into slavery because of what? His dreams. Remember when he came to those dreamers, here comes a dreamer, and they sold him into slavery because of envy and anger about that. Well, this kissing now is an acknowledgement of, yeah, Joseph, you were right. Those dreams that you had, they're correct. We now are under you. We are now being served, your servants. Uh, again, the youngest brother being over the other bro older brothers would have been something unheard of, but there's an acknowledgement here that the dreams were right. We are now going to our normal God-given place of under you, serving you. Okay, so in summary, the nations are submit to the Son to bow down before him, to give him complete and absolute obedience and his authority over them there to turn from their rebellion and honor and serve him as well as serve the Lord of heaven and earth. Now the consequences for not doing this are, are disastrous. He also explains what's going to happen if you don't do these things. And that he says that do homage to the son that he not become angry and you perish in the way for his anger may soon be kindled. So the Lord tacks on a warning to this that if you don't do this, here are the things that are going to happen. Now the question is, is whose anger is being spoken of here? Is it the Lord's anger or is it the anointed one's anger? And I think that the context means that it's the Lord's anger, but we're going to see there's really not much of a distinction between those two. Uh, textually, textually, it may be, um, or textually, it may be uh, God the Father or God himself and not the Son, but as we see in our application, they're ind indistinguishable. There's no difference between the anger and the wrath of the Father and the anger and the wrath of his Son or his anointed. So again, if you don't do this, there will be wrath executed upon you. The wrath will be soon, soon be kindled. And then the psalm ends in a beautiful way. If it ended right here, it'd be rather depressing. They're told, yeah, trust in him and you won't be destroyed. But it ends on, on a beautiful note. It says this, blessed are all who take refuge in him. So what a wonderful way to end a psalm with a promise. Now this promise is not just for the nations. It's not just for the people of Israel that, yes, this time of vulnerability, if you take refuge in God, he will protect you. It's for them. It's for the nations. If you come to him and trust him and obey him, you will find a refuge in him. It's meant for all of humanity, all who trust 
in him, who takes refuge in him, will be a blessed man. The idea of blessed here is the same word that the Psalms open with. Blessed is the man who. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Again, he's speaking to the pagan nations, their kings and princes, their counselors, to their subject, that if they take refuge in him, they will be blessed as well. Again, it's a beautiful, breathtaking way to end a psalm like this. So that's sort of the, the outline of the psalm. Again, we've left a lot out, but I think you get the idea that there's a coronation psalm. Uh, there's nations that are rebelling against God, against his anointed, and, and the Lord speaks to them of a judgment that is going to come, that there will be a fury, there will be a fear that you will be uh, experience, and that fear will be because this one I'm anointing, I'm putting on the throne, is my son, and he has an inheritance in me, and that inheritance will be you, your land. Your people, your authority, your reigns will be under his authority. They will be his inheritance. And he will judge you for your rebellion. And that should prompt the nations to come up in obedience to him, to kiss him, to serve the Lord, to do homage to the Son, and take refuge in him lest he become angry and they perish along the way. So uh, some reflections about this. How do we see this in the New Testament? How does it develop throughout the history of theology? Well, first of all, there's a rebellion taking place here. It's a very limited rebellion. In, in the eyes of those who read this, it would have been the surrounding nations of Israel, the nations that surrounded Israel. But, but in our day, we see a much broader rebellion. We see a rebellion, basically a worldwide rebellion taking place, where the world, the cosmos, uh, the world system is rebelling against God and his authority. They are seeking to break these bonds, these cords of God's law. Uh, we see it, I'll, I'll, three areas, I could have picked a dozen, three areas. We see it in uh, homosexuality. We've just spent a whole month of listening to what? Celebrate homosexuality. The, the one thing that God points to as a complete reversal of his creation order, if there's depths of depravity in the scripture, homosexuality is the Mariana Trench of that depravity. When you get there, you've overthrown all of God's creation order. All of it. And yet we spent a week celebrating it. Not just agreeing with it, but celebrating it. Again, that expresses a rebellion against God and against his authority. In fact, it, and it's, it's so oppressing, it's hard to believe how um, deep the contempt the world has uh, against us for standing out against this. I, I was gonna, I've been doing a lot of study the last year on homosexuality, the biblical response to it, uh, what those who support it say, uh, the history of it, uh, the medical aspects of it, uh, uh, the practice of it by men who had come out of that world. And I was going to do, each day I was going to do a post on Facebook explaining some aspect of it that gives a complete contrast to the way it's being explained to us by the world. Uh, just the, the medical uh, issues with it are, are, are horrible. And uh, I didn't do it. And the reason why, I just was not mentally or spiritually prepared for the pushback I was going to get. And I didn't want to spend all vacation responding to what I was going to get, get said. But th that pressure is there to confirm, to confirm, or to just be quiet. And I guarantee next year, I will do it. But it, there's just this pressure to confirm, to not push back, to listen, to just acquiesce. Uh, we see it in the idea of transgenderism. 
And people think that's a, really a new phase, but if you study um, Robert Gagnon's book on homosexuality, transgenderism is, is just another extension of homosexuality. The only difference now is we have the technology to bring it forward in a way that the ancient world didn't, but they're very, very closely linked. I was listening to a, a, a debate uh, a guy was giving a lecture at a college, and a, a woman stood up and uh, tried to defend the idea that, that uh, gender is not binary. And, and she lists all these organizations, uh, these medical organizations, these psychological organizations, these uh, pediatrician organizations that all support the idea uh, of more than one sex. And uh, just, just the contempt, the arrogance that this lady displayed. Again, it's a sign of that rebellion. Or take the, uh, the recent abortion ruling. All that Dobbs did, it did one thing. It basically said, the states have the right now to prevent women from killing their children. That's all it said. That's all it did. If you're a state and you so desire, you can now pass a law that prevents women from killing babies. And you see the anger. You see the fury. You see the hatred brought out just against that one ruling. And that, that is a world that is in rebellion against God. And what does God do? Well, God scoffs at it. He laughs at it. The idea that they are going to overthrow me, that they are going to overturn my law, my rule, my authority. It, from our, our perspective, it may appear to be overwhelming. But from God's perspective, it's not. Now, why is it not? Well, the same reason that it was in Israel is that God has set his king upon his throne, is anointed. Now, who is that anointed? In Psalm 2, it was one of the sons of David. Each successive son was put on the throne. This psalm was recited, uh, repeating this promise, this decree that God made to him. But the ultimate king, the ultimate anointed ruler was Jesus Christ himself. And we'll see more of this in Psalm 110, where God says, he sat at my right hand. He invites Christ to come and sit at his right hand and rule with him over the universe, over the world. And we'll see what the reaction of that was to the people of Israel when they finally realize that this son, this one that we crucified, now is both Lord and Christ. So God doesn't put an earthly man on the throne. He puts Jesus on that throne. Uh, this psalm was given, this quote was quoted during the baptism of Christ. Remember, he was, went under the water. When he came up, a dove descended upon him, and the words were spoken, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. That's just a, a Septuagint version of this passage here. Now, what is God saying to the disciples who are listening to that? That this is the Son. This is the anointed. This is the one who God is going to put upon his throne, the one who is going to receive the nations as his inheritance and who's going to rule over them. This is the one that we have to put our trust in. This is the one that we have to give our homage to, that when we take refuge in him, we will be secure, we will be blessed. That's what that quotation meant to the disciples. In other words, it was God saying, listen to him. He is the one. And then throughout his life, they, they kept expecting him to bring the kingdom back, to somehow kick out the Romans and install the kingdom, and he didn't. Instead, he was crucified. Okay, the great mighty king of Psalm 2 is crucified. And what happened after his crucifixion? Well, he was raised again from the dead. And now we see what Psalm 2 is speaking of, where now he raised him up and seated him at that place of authority 
And what did God do? He gave him the nation. All rule, all authority, all power is given to him. Paul expresses this in 1 Colossians, whether it's in the heaven above or whether it's in the earth below, things seen, things unseen, uh, dominions, authorities, rulers, powers, all of them now are given to Christ. They are his to rule with as he pleases. What Paul is saying there in Colossians is exactly what happened here in Psalm 2, that all of it was given to him as his inheritance. As far as the judgment goes, the wrath, we debated, well, is it the Father's wrath or the Son's wrath that's being expressed here? Well, does it really matter? Think of what Justin's teaching in Revelation. Remember Revelation 5, where the seals are there, and they're seals of wrath, and there's no one there to open those seals. And it says John weeps, because there's no one there to execute the judgment of God upon the nations. And who comes to open them? The Lamb of God who was slain. Christ has the authority to open those seals and to execute judgment. What we see in Revelation, the seals and the bowls of wrath are nothing more than what is being expressed here. That Christ receiving the nations as in his inheritance and executing his judgment upon those nations. Now, again, the last phrase there. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So I ask you, have you taken refuge in Christ? And I want to emphasize something here, because many times when, when I, I talk to people about their faith, I, I get these uh, responses like, well, God saved me. I learned about God. I read about God. God forgave me. God did this. God did that. And you hate to criticize somebody saying that. But what I want to hear is not that God did it. Your access to God doesn't come through God. It comes through Christ himself. He is the only man under heaven and earth by which we must be saved. When the Philippian jailer was pleading for salvation, what must I do to be saved? Paul didn't say, well, believe in God. He said, believe in Jesus and you will be saved. So making vague references to God and regarding your salvation raises a flag in my mind. Because you should be coming through Jesus. God appointed him as the one we go through. Are you doing homage to Jesus? Have you kissed the son? Have you believed upon him as your access to the father? Because if you haven't, then you're going around the way God planned for you to come to him. He put Christ clearly between you and him and said, listen to him, obey him, come to him, and you will come to me. What did Jesus say? He who listens to me, he who hears me, hears my Father. If you've seen me, you've seen my Father. As my Father works, I work, for I do the works of my Father. So your salvation is to be in him. And unless you understand that, then my question is, are you really saved? And there are a lot of people that, that come into church that, that are, you meet that simply don't understand that. It's just God saved me. God did this. God did that. And it's not just God, it's Jesus. And the scripture goes through great emphasis, great effort to make that clear to us, that it's Christ that we trust in, it's him that we believe. And knowing that, we therefore have a refuge that we can trust in and be blessed by believing him. So my question is, have you trusted in Christ? Is he where your hope is? Have you put your faith in him? Have you reckoned with who he is? Have you reckoned with what he has said, that he is your judge and he is your savior? 
And unless he is your savior, he will be your terrible judge. But blessed are those who take refuge in him. And one more thing I want to point out. It seems like there's a, a lack of hope here, especially for the Gentiles. We think, oh, the Gentiles, they're just doomed. They're done. And it's really not. If you go through Romans 11, Paul talks about a time when, when the Gentiles, God took the Jews, and he set them aside. He actually hardened the Jews for a time. And during that hardening now, he's bringing in another group into the church, and that is the Gentiles. So at this point in our history of redemption, what is God doing? Well, he's bringing in hordes of Gentiles. Remember, Revelation, it says that heavens will be populated with people uh, from every nation, tongue, and tribe. They'll be filled, not with Jews, but with people throughout the world. And that's happening right now. That God, through missionaries, through us witnessing to our neighbors who are 99% of them are going to be Gentiles, uh, God is bringing those rebellious kings, those rebellious people into his kingdom and saving them and populating heaven with the nations. Uh, Think of that great vision in Isaiah. I I love this passage where it speaks of the the Lord being on on the mountain, the holy mountain, and that, that the nation streaming to that mountain. Imagine a great flow of people coming into roads, uh, the dust that they would kick up, streaming into the nation to come up to that hill for what? For what purpose? To gain knowledge from the Lord, to learn from the Lord, to learn his law, how they are to act, how they are to rule, how they are to lead their people. So there will be this great influx of Gentiles in the kingdom of God that will come and give homage to the Son, who will serve him, love him, who will take refuge in him and live a life pleasing to him. That is what's happening now. And that is what we are part of is this great rush of Gentiles in the church. We are part of it because we are Gentiles, and we are part of it because our ministry to people who are mostly Gentiles. So the psalm, it ends with hope. It ends with hope for us that if we take refuge in him, that we are blessed, that this judgment will not come upon us, that we will truly be reconciled to God through Christ. And it ends in hope as well that the Gentiles now are coming in. They are being brought in, ushered into the kingdom, so that when heaven and earth are revealed, there will be uh, massive amounts of Gentiles who have repented, who have turned and paid homage to the Son. Well, brethren, I hope that was helpful. Uh, I I never really understood this psalm as much as I do now, but I I trust you'll take comfort reading this. Probably uh, one of the psalms that when you read it, you'll probably remember it. You get to Psalm 70 or 80, you kind of forget what you're doing. But when I read the psalm, Psalm 2 always just sticks in my mind. It's always like a a marker there. I just love the psalm. And now I understand it better. I'll be able to trust the Lord more because of what it says. And I trust it's the same with you. This psalm will have much more meaning to you and that you'll see Christ through it. Not leave it in it, that, that little bud, but see it as it's fully formed into the glory of Christ, reigning upon his throne right now, ruling, leading, directing, and one day judging and one day saving. And I trust that you will be the one he saves and not the one he judges. So let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Or actually, we'll not dismiss. We'll have the men come up and lead us. Our right, Father, we are grateful for the words that you teach us. We're thankful for your mercy that you show us in Christ that we 
deserve your wrath, that we once were rebellious as these nations were. We once were trying to, uh, to break the cords upon us that you've put upon us through your law, through your word. Uh, but now, Lord, you've brought us to repentance. You, you've had us turn and, and trust the Son to kiss him, Father, and give him homage and, and give him rule over our life. So we thank you for that. And we pray if there are uh, those here who do not know that, who have not given him homage, who do not trust him, uh, that they would do so, that they would reach out to somebody here, another elder, another person, uh, to talk about their eternal fate, uh, the fate that is in the hands of Christ himself, and they will turn to him for refuge and be blessed. We thank you for these things in Christ's name. Amen.